0: Is we look the same, but our conscience, our mindset are somewhat different.
1: Well, so, so, do you see the
2: supernatural at work as you look out across what's happening in the world now? Do you see God at work? Do you ever think to yourself, these are forces that are not human?
0: No, honestly, I don't think
2: that.
3: Yes, folks. Left Reckoning 157 featuring David Griscom and a, just an excellent job by that translator there. <laughs> I don't know if, if, if Vlad uh, put it quite so like uh, dismissively, but no, I don't think that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. I mean, um, it is funny that like I guess it just hasn't gone far enough in, in Russia yet for uh, Putin to have to completely uh embody the bit uh that they you know people like Tucker Carlson are talking about demonic energies and rituals in the United States it seems
3: like he's not there he, yet well you know like going back and you know Igor has been someone who's looked into the synergy between the uh, right-wing conservatives in America and uh. in uh and conservatism within uh, Russia and I, I think you might have maybe overestimated the degree to which those cohere and are conversant with each other. <laughs> Cause one of the things is that like, yeah, like Tucker's kind of been, and that right wing has been freelancing a little bit when it comes to let's demonize China. Um, and uh, like some of the other things they might want to, uh, uh, um, suggest that, you know, their boy, that they're champion for anti-imperialist reasons or something all of a sudden, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, believes.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, um, there's a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance uh, when it comes to a lot of people in this country, at least, uh, who lionize uh, Vladimir Putin.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, but before we get to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, with Igor, bring it back to uh, our own country's complicity in uh, absolute bloodshed. Um, hell honestly what people are going through in gaza what children or just mm-hmm. <laughs> adult men uh for, for that matter um are going through uh, unbelievable and like the only thing uh from some like uh, that punctures that hell is occasional food aid uh sporadic and uh um, uh, um too late and tardy uh but anyway uh w- If you search Google for uh, UNRWA, the uh, United Nations organization that services Gaza and the uh, refugee uh, uh, folks there, it is all um, New York Times, or or, sorry, Wall Street Journal, those sorts of um, Times of Israel talking about, ooh, secret terrorist uh, group. And the idea that uh, even if their worst proof that out of the like me- the thousands of people that work for the United Nations, a few might have connections with people associated with Hamas, which is a resistance group that uh, engages in terrorist acts, but also does civil service stuff. Like, it's still not an appropriate response remotely to cut off funding hmm. for that. Uh, nonetheless, Christian Guru Murthy, uh, Channel 4 anchor, uh, talked to one of the people who should be locked up um, for doing propaganda on behalf of this genocide, Ilan Levy, uh, IDF spokesperson, and uh, pushed for any evidence of this, despite the fact that governments are already, including our own, um, uh, acting formally on the accusation uh, that um, this A group that is a life saving organization for hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, is actually a terrorist and we need to pull funding uh, right after the ICJ says it's plausible that uh, the evidence we see in front of our eyes that Israel is committing genocide. So here's a little bit of pushback from Channel 4 in the UK.
4: There were huge consequences as a result of your naming of people who worked for UNRWA. What the world has not seen is the accompanying evidence. I just want to know, does, is there accompanying evidence? Is there anything beyond those names And have you shared it with the United Nations investigation that is going on? Because there is millions of pounds of aid that
0: is resting on those claims and hundreds of thousands of lives dependent on it. When we said that UNRWA, at least 13 UNRWA staff members, and that's apart from the thousands of UNRWA graduates, but the 13 UNRWA staff members were directly involved in the October 7th massacre, that was the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, do you have any of evidence Of the complicity for that? That and collusion. Because 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 have because this, this was all collected. Because this was all collected.
3: Just a bit of quantitative data. Uh, 30,000, uh, over 30,000 personnel working for uh, uh,
0: UNRWA. Basis of intelligence that When's has been shared with our allies. Intelligence that has been shared with our allies. When I'm not was going it to shared with Britain?
4: Because Britain claimed it didn't
0: know. I can't speak to the specific intelligence that has been shared with individual Western partners, but that evidence is out there. It is clear. Is there direct
4: evidence about those 13 names? Where is it? Have you passed it to the UN investigation or not?
0: We do not trust the UN investigation that is taking place. So there is no evidence that you have
4: placed in front of
0: anybody. The United Nations, the United Nations, which has been covering up the Hamas presence, literally 20 meters underneath the UN headquarters in Gaza, cannot be trusted to conduct any sort of internal review. Have you given the evidence to the the US or
4: British governments?
0: I'm not personally aware of what material may have been passed on between our intelligence agencies.
3: Exactly. So he's uh, just completely lying, which is all Israel has been doing this entire time. And like I said... (laughs) It's almost such a laughably small number that mm-hmm. if that is the uh, the amount of people that Israel could plausibly uh, accuse of of having any connections with Hamas, a dozen out of 30,000, uh, it, it's a fucking joke. The whole thing is a joke.
2: And just recognizing the struggles that they've had to even definitively link folks um, in yeah. the first place, um, you know, right there, the kind of tiptoeing and dancing around the fact that, yeah – it um, doesn't seem like we have this uh, smoking gun, um, but even as you were just saying, Matt, uh, yeah, thirteen people out of thirty thousand, uh, you know, does not make uh, Unra like into some big conspiratorial, dangerous sleeper cell it's army. It's pretty
3: impressive. Considering how embedded Hamas is with as like, again, not just like, not just like, oh, we do terrorism 24-7, 365. That's our business here. Hamas is on top of a resistance group also like embedded in civil society. So Mm -hmm. that a massive, again, like it's just, it's a category error. It is, it is that, first of all, it's like saying, um, look at all these Israelis who uh, uh, support guys who shoot up mosques. Um, uh, which is a massive problem, not just within like regular Israeli society, but like uh, leadership and, uh, and said like, okay, well, let's just go massacre people willy-nilly. Like that, that's like the, the sort of logic we're seeing here. It is it's, um, it's really dark um, and it really does uh, it, it, the, the images we see of uh, Israelis <laughs> flocking to the southern border to mm-hmm. out of their out of their fucking time, taking time out of their lives to go have raves to block aid, uh, as people starve and are bombed and turn limb from limb, mm-hmm. um, you know it, it, that we're shaping up a pretty dark century, uh, especially when you look at oh this is happening on our, on our southern border uh, as well, let alone what's happening, um, you know across Europe with regards to the Mediterranean. But yeah, um, it's it's sick this uh, unrest stuff.
2: Uh, absolutely is. And, you know, I think that having a, <laughs> a representative of your government uh, going on television and saying that, yeah, the United Nations is the problem. <laughs> the United Nations is a part of the problem. Um, I don't know. I think pretty explicitly shows uh, what you are engaged in um, and what Genocidal to the rest of the world. I mean, it's unbelievable yeah. uh, to sit here and, and, and for these folks to talk in the way that they are. Um, and 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 directly waging war now on not just the, the human beings in Gaza, um, but yeah, on on journalists, on aid workers, um, and in in the most you know brazen way. I mean, um, you know, I think as you just noted, you know, that story about, um, uh, folks dancing and holding a rave to stop food and medicine from getting to children and human beings, um, you know, shows. I mean, just not only. Um, you know, how disgusting um, the, the, the kind of mindset of, of the average, um, or we shouldn't even say average, um, you know, out of like a significant part of the Israeli population, but the perversity of it, right, beyond just sort of saying like, hey, we have to do this nasty, inhumane thing, um, you know, to win this victory, right, and, you know, get our hands dirty, but the sacrifice is sort of worth it. No, it's like, let's turn this into a festival, and a fun experience for us. I mean, that is extremely dehumanizing and nasty kind of thing. You also have been having you know, these other stories um, you know, about, uh, oh, what are IDF soldiers doing uh, with the empty kitchens uh, that they're ransacking in Gaza? What kind of meals are they prepping on the road? I mean, just disgusting things um, cool. on, on a daily basis, as, as everybody has known since the beginning of this onslaught.
3: And uh, you search, I, I mean, you search UNRWA, uh, first uh, uh, result, Wall Street Journal, UNRWA's not-so-independent investigators. As if fucking Israel uh, is good at investigating, it can be taken at face value from investigating anything. I mean, uh, unbelievable. Uh, um, Israel says, uh, again, Times of Israel, Israel says UNRWA probe mandate into findings of staff partition in October 7th, too vague. Um, I mean th- it's just like all Unura case reveals a much larger problem with humanitarian aid like w- pretty dark things happening because we are all paying attention and we can see this but if you've never heard of UNRWA before and you decide to search that this terrorism accusation which is not substantiated is completely obscuring anything out mm-hmm. the ICJ genocide stuff Like, I mean, this is, uh, yeah,
2: go ahead. No, no. I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying like, this is just uh, from the get go, I I think at at a certain point, like you can talk about the individual atrocities, you can talk about whatever the the news story of the day is, but like, you have to be aware of like the Israeli propaganda playbook. And it's been from the very get go, uh, which is uh, distort, confuse, distract. Um, and this whole thing a brutal um, thing that we're watching is just another attempt at doing it right oh what if what if instead of you know more coverage of the atrocities in gaza um, you know, we get to see if, oh, maybe the New York times will do an investigative piece of just to see how bad, uh, the United Nations organization is in Gaza, right? Oh, just yeah. how many terrorists do we think are actually in there? Right. Oh, so what if that can be what the news story is for the week? Um, and like that, that just like throughout, you know, whether, you know, earlier is like, oh, did Israel bomb a hospital? Or did they bomb the side of the hospital, right? Or did they mean to do it? Or was it an accident? All this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just a very constant stream of, uh, you know, if not just straight up disinformation, things used to muddy the water and distract the conversation so that people can have sort of fervent, loud debates about things, um, you know, to sort of obscure the fundamental reality, uh, which is Israel is is engaged in mass slaughter of human beings um, with seemingly no end in sight. Um, and no real strategic or political, uh, ju- not the only justification, but reasoning at this point, other than just total war on a civilian population.
3: Yep. So yeah, that's, uh, today in Zionist lies, um, in real things, South Africa urges ICJ to consider action on Israel's planned rough assault. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, then that's, you know, where we're at today. Uh, we felt por- important to at least note, um, uh, I, 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 it really makes me despair when I look at those search results. Like, barely a one that mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a dark world we're seeing develop, folks. Um, anyways, Yegor a uh, Russian socialist in Moscow, uh, stayed up late for us. We actually just finished that an hour or so ago. Uh, and here is uh, this conversation, folks. And uh, we will see you on the other side uh, as we go to the post game. Welcome Left Reckoners, I'm Matt Leck, with me as ever, David Griscom. Hello, Dave. Hey, brother. And uh, joining us now, Yegor Kotkin. Yegor is a socialist from Russia who you may have seen on The Hill, on Breaking Points, uh, Matt Binder's uh, Doomed podcast. Yegor, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, happy to talk to you guys.
3: Um, ha- really happy to talk to you finally. Um and maybe as a little introduction, I'm curious you know, you are currently in Moscow, is that correct? Exactly, um, yes. Talk about being a socialist in Moscow, uh, you know, over the past uh, few years.
1: Uh, frustrating over <laughs> the past few decades. Uh, I mean, the pendulum swings back too hard in the last 30 years. I mean, I, I'm kind of a newly minted socialist, uh, it, uh, I started as a liberal, I started from the right-wing uh, perspective actually uh, just because when I was growing up in the 90s uh, as any a young person I was looking forward I was progressive minded and uh, my, my major mindset was that progressive minded means liberal minded end of history uh, and whatever this weird boomers with red flags, uh, red flags were doing, it's weird, it's bad So, my progressivism led me first on the right. Uh, I was a liberal uh, for a long time, I was even a libertarian. Uh, One of the reasons why I enjoy libertarian debates uh, on uh, some city show so much because I can uh, recognize myself (laughs) on the other side and I hate it actually. But uh, at some point I just... uh, well, I was looking for the same thing, but at some point I just realized that the answers are not there on, on the right. So I just uh, moved to the left and uh, I suddenly find out that I'm very much alone. There is no left infrastructure in Russia. There is no... even your like uh, left uh, tube, bread tube corner of the YouTube that is uh, marginal uh, in the bigger picture, but still pretty powerful and uh, concise. It doesn't exist in Russia. Uh, there is uh, like very strong uh, red cone movement, uh, red, red conservators uh, who are uh, the Stalinists in the, in the worst way possible. Who basically repeat uh, American conservative rhetoric. They uh, hate. Uh, LGBT movement, they think that uh, trans rights is a bourgeois plot to whatever. So they are very reactionary, but they uh, identify with the former Soviet Union. And uh, the new left, uh, there are individual Mm -hmm. people like me, who uh, basically want the same thing that Bolsheviks want 100 years ago, but uh, updated the current moment. And uh, there are individual people, but you have to literally find individuals in the internet space of Russia, in the Russian-speaking internet uh, space, and uh, to bring it together somehow through YouTube, through Telegram channels, uh, because there is no infrastructure. There is no concise space, left space, for people who share uh, socialist or communist views and, uh, of 21st century, not uh, like na- late 19th century. So, yes, it is frustrating,
3: but it is hopeful. It's interesting. It strikes me that your um, sort of journey politically mirrors our David Griscom's a little bit, too, from uh, Austin, Texas, with the um, early reaction against liberalism. Isn't that right, David?
2: (laughs) Yes, very much so. Yeah, no, I will say, though, even though I was on the right for a while, when I was younger, I moved very quickly from— I didn't really have a liberal phase, if that makes sense. I, I, I went from being on, like, the conservative GOP side to a social is pretty fast, but um, no, it's interesting to hear. Well, I mean, I, I know we got like a lot of other things we wanted to, to 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 get to, but I'm just curious if if you could just give folks who might not have an understanding of this actually, um, you know, where like working class organizations or institutions are at politically in in Russia right now. Um, you know, do they exist in the same way that they did under the Soviet Union? Um, you know, are they politically active? Um, or they've been sort of Mirroring what's happened in, you know, America and a lot of Western Europe, where the trade union movements and things like that have sort of been on the decline.
1: Well, they don't, definitely don't exist in the same way they existed in Soviet Union because in Soviet Union they were co-opted by the uh, state and party too much. They were they were uh, uh, unable to live on their own on their own. Mm-hmm. So they basically with the, so when the Soviet uh, Union was uh, dissolved, uh, the previous. Uh, Worker uh, unions uh, infrastructure was dissolved too, and I can tell as a child of the 90s, the work, the word Prof. Soyuz, uh, trade union, uh, worker mm-hmm. union, uh, was uh, sounded to me like some absolutely meaningless uh, bureaucratic term. It was uh, so much emptied of any meaning that uh, has anything to do with uh, worker democracy. Uh, a worker autonomy fighting for the rights it was just a uh, part of the state that was uh, basically distributing some benefits and bonuses from the state uh, from top to bottom exactly the opposite that uh, worker union should be like a uh, bottom to top mm-hmm. movement so when uh, soviet union died it uh, all died as well and uh, in the last five years we seen organically uh, rebirth of the worker movement in Russia, like the Prof. use Courier, uh, which means delivery guy, because we have a robust delivery uh, industry or whatever, yeah. like you have Amazon, we have Amazon, like you have your food delivery services, we have the same in Russia, uh, our internet industry very much mirrors yours, uh, and uh, people uh, th- Hundreds of thousands, thousands of thousands people working here are organized, but it's still uh, very much uh, devoid of ideology. People mm. uh, in some industries uh, are able to recognize their common interest, uh, economical material interest, but they are still averse of uh, the, any ideological affiliation and uh, people from the old red guard are unable to speak to them because they are too much tied to the basically dead ideology well late soviet form of this ideology and young people are not uh, yet uh, involved in that and uh, so it just uh, sparks of it so at yeah. some point eventually uh worker movement will meet a uh, uh, worker ideology but right now as i said uh, pendulum uh, swing too hard in the opposite direction, so people even trying to do uh, uh, worker movement are afraid uh, to basically identify as themselves even before their own eyes or in their own minds as the left or moreover socialist and stuff, so it's uh, all ahead of us.
3: And, you know, I want to get sort of uh, back into that um, a little bit more, but the occasion for us uh, discussing this is uh, Tucker Carlson, former uh, Fox News, disgraced Fox News host, the current <laughs> independent journalist, I um, uh, talked with uh, Vladimir Putin. And, you know, we, I, I do want to get back to how Putin started with the historic, uh, the long term history um, discussion that a lot of people are keen in on because Tucker was a little bit annoyed. Um, by that, but you know, you mentioned a couple times the '90s, and that's the part where I thought the interview started. You know, um, my ears peaked, perked up at because I just read Vadislav Zuvbach's collapse uh, uh, about Gorbachev and the fall of the USSR. I'm curious about your perspective as somebody who the, from the '90s in Russia, um, your perspective on you know Putin talking about how we expected a hand of friendship, maybe more assistance from uh, the West in our transition um from the USSR as a socialist in Russia like what was your interpretation of that part
1: uh, as a socialist in Russia I, I say this is was the b- biggest news uh Putin broke for us uh, saying directly that uh late Soviet elite part of which he was uh, definitely as a L- 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 KGB colonel working in Germany uh small part like uh, low part but still on, he was definitely from the Soviet elite he directly said uh, only said the first in 32 years that they basically sold uh, USSR uh, for the hope of becoming a part of uh, western global bourgeois elite this was uh, huge and uh, left spaces in uh, Russia in Russian telegram channels uh, in Russian twitter they all picked up on that because the thing that we knew all along, we suspected all along, that basically uh, Gorbachev sold the uh, USSR for the uh, glorious privilege to appear in Pizza Hut uh, advertisement or Yeltsin uh, and uh, Putin sold the USSR to, be, to hope become uh, restore, basically, Russian Empire become new aristocracy. And they were all up and hard in the 90s and still LARPing as uh, basically uh, old Russian aristocracy. Uh, they, he confirmed it. And it was, mm-hmm. I mean, we knew that all along, but uh, it's nice to see that he uh, realizes and they, I mean, Russian bourgeois elite understands what they did and why they did it.
2: Matt, you're, uh, you're muted.
3: Sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. So, uh, ultimately, Tucker Carlson has this um, interview with Putin announced I'm curious what your reaction to that was, uh, you know, going into it.
1: Uh, actually, I was kind of excited because um, my main point that I'm pushing uh, last two, three, four years and on Twitter, like my uh, overall project is to expose uh, Russian-American conservative pipeline and basically uh explain to people how not russia met in america but basically uh, russia became uh, an image of america but a very specific image if uh, you have like imagine the thought experiment that if you had in 2000 uh, when putin became president same year when bush became president if you had a republican taking all control over the congress over the uh, Supreme Court of the Presidency and holding on unilaterally for 24 years. You would not be able to, uh, to distinguish Russia today with the all anti-gay laws uh, and uh, anti-trans laws and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, vi- police violence and stuff. You won't be able to distinguish it from America. I mean, you still have all the same uh, things, but you have them contained to red states. You have them uh, in contention with the, the liberal elites. If uh, we have the dynamic, uh, if like Republicans won completely, and uh, Putin uh, repeats uh, American uh, conservative talking points uh, to ridiculous extent. In the first month of the war, he was uh, complaining that uh, John Rowling was has been cancelled by the uh, Western Liberals. I mean, he, it was uh, his justification, something-something uh, about uh, invasion to Ukraine. It basically sounded like Jordan Peterson. Who also mm-hmm. say the same thing that uh, because uh tra- trans culture trans agenda cancel Kartu therefore Ukraine should be invaded. Uh, so and uh, you can uh, pick up on the uh in, in, in many details, it's uh, not a coincidence. They are directly being fed by talking points. From the american right and they basically uh implementing uh the dream of the american right uh in in, in russia so what do you make i know I, oh go ahead no i just I, I i forgot where i asked what was the question initially because I, I i know i left somewhere but i forgot the question
3: uh that's a that you know i mean i was just gonna f- maybe follow up like Talk about, well, I remember what I asked you, like, you know, I'm, I know you've noticed the MAGA communists we have here in America. Um, I'm curious, and, uh, do you, I, I, I sometimes think, like, they're a distraction. I'm curious about your perspective on them. Um, what's, what do you think their significance is? Uh,
1: in American context, I think Zero. In Russian context, uh, they uh, remind me of the people I, I, tol- I told you uh, initially: redcons, red conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. they are uh, like uh, quoting Stalin, Lenin, and, and Marx, but they also totally bind in the modern uh, cultural war, war uh, agenda from the right-wing perspective. So between and Lenin, who was very radical on many social issues for his time, they are repeating uh, absolutely uh, regressive uh, uh, talking points of the modern uh, American right, and it looks ridiculous. It looks uh, out of place and out of time. And uh, but in Russia, at least, uh, you can uh, understand where where it comes. It's boomers. They happen to be born in the more progressive society than the society they live right now. So history go went back on them. So you can uh, understand where 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 they are emerged, how they emerged like that, with the partially progressive views from the past and regressive views from the present. In American uh, context, I don't see uh, any future or any, uh, I don't know, uh, electorate for the uh, base for that movement. It's just uh, some kind of weird online laughing. Mm. In my view right and yeah i was just asking the co- what you
3: you say you uh you were sort of pleased to see that at least putin was going to be uh exposed because and it sounded like you got what you uh were hoping for with him making that admission regards to how the 90s uh played out i'm
1: i'm not uh i i, I didn't look for it like a gotcha i just uh yeah. i didn't expect him to be exposed he exposed himself mm-hmm. uh well in, in in my respects uh to me it was I mean, I didn't, know, I didn't know what to expect. It was interesting in the sense that uh, uh, the main dynamic international dynamic of the past two years is, uh, is basically a, a fight against uh, between Russia and America, so it should be been interesting to see um, heterodox to say the best uh, jour- American journalist uh, not don't just liberal. I mean, if Putin was uh, giving interview to a liberal journalist it would be useless. Absolutely useless. Right. Uh, we know we know what what they would uh, lead with. We know what they would want from this interview. Tucker Carlson. Uh, I, in terms of his American uh, place and uh, influence, I agree with you completely. I know how you feel about him, and I don't, uh, and uh, I totally buy into it. But in terms of his place in Moscow, uh, I think he was. The best from uh, American uh, journalist uh, from the daily recognition, t- t- situated the best to get something interesting from Pu- from Putin, and he got it. In in my view, in many respects, uh, Putin was very open to him, and he said a lot of truths. In my view, uh, and I'm not saying it com- in complimentary ways. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. like the truth that they basically sold the USSR for cookies is not a compliment to Putin But it was definitely a truth and it was very informative and it was a highlight It was terrible news but it was also a highlight in terms of the informative uh, part of the interview So I think, uh, not as a compliment to Putin, not as a compliment uh, uh, to Carlson But the interview was great and very informative and uh, there are many points uh, I could elaborate and in terms yeah, of what I learned <laughs>
3: I just want to start with the very beginning, which is Tucker sets up the NATO prompt, uh, which we're all very familiar with and and Putin surprises him, I think, a little bit by going into, you know, deep history, including presenting him with some documents to the point where Carlson asks a couple of times, like, what's the relevant here relevance here? I'm curious, like, yeah, how do how did you read that the opening?
1: I actually think it was uh, very informative in in a certain in a certain sense as a window in, in Putin's thinking. I mean, uh and uh, no one as as far as I can uh, say not in Russian space, not in uh, American space picked up on this detail. Uh here the here they think uh, that uh, his uh, all, overall historical narrative is uh, a historical drivel. It's like uh, it's it's funny when people say it's like college level of history. Maybe for Americans, yes, when you you look, well, it's where you learn Russian history in college. But it's a seventh grade level of history. It's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a narrative that I read in history books uh, in, in regular mm. history books in school. This is a kind of narrative that I was uh, being a history buff uh, constructed around seventh grade. So it's it's very demented. And it's uh, a historical, a materialist, uh, idealist crap. But
2: there was a very
1: interesting moment uh, because he was, it basically it was invented uh, in, from the whole course. No, well, not from the whole course, It was invented. Uh, he was uh, repeating after many Russian uh, nationalist writers and his favorite philosopher, basically uh, Russian fascist Ivan Elin and stuff. But because the narrative, anyway, completely invented by the right, uh, you can see what he believes. Because Mm -hmm. when he uh, highlights some things, uh, he highlights it not because it's important from the historical point of view, but because it's important from his point of view. There was a moment around uh, eight to ten minutes in the interview when he uh, he started talking about 17th century and he presented the history of the conflict with Poland. When he was uh, this uh, folder of the documents, original documents, try to present attacker. Uh, 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 he presented this conflict when uh, Russia first, when Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian Cossacks asked Russia, request Russia to take them from the Poland to protect them from the Poland. Russia initially declined because they don't want, didn't want to fight to, to go to war with the West with Poland. But ten years later, they. Uh, Started the war. War, war uh, went for uh, many, many years, and they eventually uh, took over the east of the Dnipro River and Kiev. The way he Putin uh, told the story, and uh, the moment, the fact that he was prepared to I- illustrate it with the documents, precisely this moment, it sounds very uh, modern. Basically, uh, if you look at these two minutes of him, three minutes, from eight minutes to ten, eleven minutes telling this story, you basically hear him saying the same story that happened in the last ten years. So there was a request from Donbass, save us from this polonization, Westernization. and at first Putin was reluctant to answer to that request because it would uh, lead to the war with the West. I mean Poland mm-hmm. in the century, uh, USA right now uh but eventually he came over a long war and then uh Russia takes over the eastern ukraine and kyiv so the way he told this story seems to me like he thinks we are living this moment right now i'm not saying that he's right i think it's again a historical but i think the, this is the moment in history he's lapping he's trying to recreate right now so uh, to me At best, uh, the most productive uh, conclusion I can make from that, that he probably wants to, his plan maximum is to take over the Eastern Ukraine, is to revert Dnipro and maybe Kyiv, but he's not looking to take over the uh, entire Ukraine, leaving it to the future generations of Russian leaders. Uh, The same way he said uh, that this job was Ended uh, last time by Catherine the Great, 100 years later than uh, mm. after the uh, uh, Tsar Alexei.
3: You know, we haven't discussed much um, the time, the decades leading up to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm curious your contextualization um, and how much emphasis you can decide how much you want on the Orange Revolution, Euromaidan, the Donbass of violence. Um, you, know, you know, you have the floor
1: um well I, I'm not actually an expert in uh, Ukrainian history uh, I, I had to become one in the last two years and I'm not happy <laughs> uh, but uh, I can tell that uh, I became more critical uh, more I learned about Ukraine I became more critical of it not far from uh, justifying any kind of uh, war and stuff and it was uh, like a huge historical mistake even if I accepted mm-hmm. uh, Putin's uh, intention to Co-opt Ukraine it was the worst possible way to go about it the best possible way is to go neoliberal way to give them a lot of uh, loans and then basically buy the country uh, uh, he he decided to go the old school way the worst possible way to do imperialism in nowadays uh, but uh, here's the thing about Ukraine I can tell that uh, as in my liberal period, I was looking at Ukrainian Maidan. They had uh, two Maidans in 2004 and 2014, as a sign of vibrant democracy, freedom of, of uh, speech, uh, and the people uh, not putting up with any kind of dictatorship. But uh, looking at it right now, I understand that it it was always slow-burning uh, civil war between uh, pro-Russian. Or Russian-speaking. It's not pro-Russian, like it gravitates to Russia. It's just a territory populated by Russian-speaking people uh, and uh, of Russian culture, basically. And mm-hmm. the nationalist Western Ukraine. And uh, the problem, of course, uh, na- uh, project of the nationalist uh, Ukrainian, uh, strictly Ukrainian-speaking Ukraine, uh, has total right to exist, but it has to be a much smaller country. Because there is a, a roughly a half of the country that th- doesn't want to put themselves in this box of Ukrainian culture when they are uh, part of the much bigger and much more uh, rich, at least in this moment, in history culture. So every time, and uh, the problem nationalists—they uh, are very bad. Uh, it's hard to negotiate with nationalists. They want everything. So every time, uh, if if they were. Content with two, two lingual, uh, bilingual, bicultural country, Ukraine, Ukraine would be fine. But they always want to make it into a uh, unicultural country. So we see this conflict uh, in in a different universe. You could imagine some some kind of a conflict going on in Canada, for example. Uh, you can see uh, the similar conflict going on in in Spain. You can see it uh, Britain uh, England versus Scotland. But uh, difference, of course, it, it, it's a rich country, it's d- deep in the West, uh, so they are protected. Ukraine, on the other hand, was expo- uh, exposed to Russian influence, and Russia capitalized on these conflicts. So the uh, divide be- inside Ukraine is genuine. But Russia has always been uh, a malevolent force to exploit it deep and, uh, and exacerbate mm-hmm. it. And uh, in short, both sides, both sides are wrong uh, in, in many respects. I mean, uh, Russia is wrong uh, in the sense that it's bigger, it's stronger, so it has, mo- it has more agency, uh, so uh, it, it carries more responsibility. So uh, doing basically the same nationalist shit uh, as Ukraine, Russia still carries more responsibility uh, because it's more powerful. Uh, but Ukraine is not an innocent part in that too.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I would say nor is uh, any sort of Western powers that um, got in the way of any. And like, I'm not making definitive claims when I say
1: don't exactly. uh, or, I, like, seek I, I, diplomacy. I, yeah, I, I will to add to that part. Uh, I, I just wanted to continue this. And uh, when, it, uh, when you contextualize Russia against the West, it's uh, exactly the opposite dynamic. Again, Russia is uh, wrong in many respects, imperialism, nationalism, aggression. But then when you put it uh, against even bigger body, the collective West and USA, and you understand that uh, their sins are similar. But because collective West and the USA in particular are much stronger, their responsibility is much bigger. So it's like uh, this kind of spiral, like West against Russia, the same dynamic as Russia versus Ukraine, and the same dynamic as Ukraine versus Donbas. So at, at, at any level, every, everyone wrong, everyone nationalist, everyone aggressive. But uh, if you add the factor of the power, you can see who is, uh, carries more responsibility in each conflict. I mean, uh, Ukraine versus Donbas, uh, the bigger responsibility on Ukrainian side. Uh, uh, you, Russia versus Ukraine, the bigger responsibility you know, on the Russian side, because Russia is uh, much more powerful. But uh, the final boss is still the United States of America.
3: We had a big and I'm sure you saw the uh, Russiagate um, um, sort of paranoia uh, following Trump's victory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious your perspective, because my thing is always like, yeah, Russia is almost certainly doing things to influence us. Also, um, Israel is (laughs) and a whole bunch of other countries. Right. Exactly. And so, like, um, you know, I'm curious about and and, and so like I and I also um, think that we are doing things to undermine um, democracy or at least a development among democratic lines that we don't like um, in other countries all the time. I also think it's not a cause for, uh, we all agree, it's not a cause for um, open <laughs> war um, to be declared. But I'm just curious about you, your perspective on like the global influence operations of somebody uh, inside
1: Russia. Uh, from Russia or on Russia?
3: Um, either or, whether like our perspective on like how we sort of, like, I mean, maybe like we literally describe- have
1: like,
2: you know, elected officials in this country seeing you know, protests against police brutality and saying things like, oh, you know, this is making Putin very happy or, you know, Putin's plan is working. Nancy right?
3: Pelosi, Nancy <laughs> Pelosi just the other day said that Putin uh, uh, benefits from people who call for a ceasefire in Palestine.
1: I think you can you, you cannot go, go against the power dynamic that uh, expressed in the economic power I mean as a materialist historic materialist, mm-hmm. it's, it's very easy to see where the economic power where the they the ultimate power in the relationship so the idea that uh, the country that have 15 times less GDP than America have more uh, could we have more influence on America than America on this country? No, it's not possible because look where the money you can uh, Put the money and the same way like uh, 1% have like 50% of your economy they have 50% of uh, political influence It also uh, works uh, in, in Russia the same it only works in Russia and it's also uh, true for relationship between the countries the richer country is more powerful uh, is more powerful country and have more influence. So Russia tries to do this something. Something I don't uh, doubt that, uh, but it's more like uh, against American mind, American control over discourse that we then can't, can't even notice sometimes, can't even perceive mm-hmm. because of uh, capitalist realism and American realism. Uh, there, they are just incompatible, incomparable, and uh, con- specifically Russia gate. Uh, Conspiracy was very funny to me because I was learning about it uh, in my still uh, late liberal phase. I was watching MSNBC a lot in 2016, 2017, and even from there, I was picking up one uh, curious thing: that all the things uh, that were uh, liberal media attributing to supposed Russian influence on Trump were also working to see on Saudi connection on Trump uh money connection connections going from the 90s uh shady deals uh mm-hmm. uh yeah. lobby operations uh, at some point trump was basically working as a pr manager for mbs after the cash murder. merger imagine some, him doing something uh similar for putin i mean it, it would be the end of i don't know everything uh right. every mind will be blown so Every single uh claim that was made to justify uh, Trump being specifically, specially beholden to Putin in any way works for Saudi Arabia, and it's much uh, more pronounced in terms of Saudi Arabia. And no one was making that claim. To me, mm. even even in when I was watching liberal media, almost exclusively, it was very apparent that it's it's bullshit uh that uh, and I think to go back to Putin's interview that was uh, an interesting uh thought uh he expressed that maybe a part of why russia is still a preferred sparring partner for usa is because you still have uh agent but still uh present experts anti anti-russia experts kremlin experts kremlinology people uh, who just uh make their living from competing yeah, they Russia. need to
2: get back on tv
1: yeah, 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 A final gig yeah. before retiring. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so basically, they all grew up in the Cold War uh, time, and the people, uh, expert, expert. I can kind of relate to expert community. If they were uh, criminologists in the 80s, what what are you gonna do in the 90s and uh, right now, 30 years after USSR fall? So for them, it's it's paramount to gaslight American um. public that Russia in any way. Uh, socialist or communist wants to restore USSR and all this bullshit when it's uh, clearly the opposite and it's uh, restoring Russian Empire in, in, in all its former glory as a prison of the nations uh, and uh, with inequality and, and uh, religiosity and uh, very, very uneducated populace. So they just need this uh, gig to keep it relevant. And uh, to me, it's honestly not very materialist, but materialist in some sense explanation. Why uh, having uh, the narratives uh, Trump being Saudi spy, uh, you constantly mm-hmm. go with Trump being Moscow spy, uh, besides the fact that uh, all, the, all those s- same connections are ever more apparent with the uh, uh, Saudis, and uh, who gave uh, Jared Kushner 2 billion dollars? Definitely not... Uh, Oh, did
3: it <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I, you know, I want. I'm curious what stuck out from you in the group. There's two parts that I want to ask you about. Uh, that where Tucker's sort of questions misaligned with um, what um, I think Putin. Or uh, so f- the first is Tucker asks him, "Do you ever see think that there's something supernatural acting on the world?" And Putin very <laughs> simply said, "No, I think that these are <laughs> processes."
1: Like, like, Go ahead. It was one of my favorite moments of the interview. Honestly, I mean, uh, because uh, that was the moment when Tucker uh, went with his. It uh, was his last attempt to get Putin on his uh, American religious right uh, agenda. I mean, he was uh, trying to do this whole interview. Putin ignored him. Uh, the whole interview. He railed over his uh, right-wing American agenda to tell about Russian elites and stuff. And then when he started to speak about God. He again no it's all materialist yeah. he, he also prior to that he made a very interesting point he said i don't know who drives american uh, politics who runs america but basically he alluded to the he didn't say it like that but it sounded to me uh, like he said uh, basically america is a combination of uh, special interest in a trench coat uh, posing as a state well he didn't say it like that but he implied that, that he don't know who runs america but it definitely not uh, any single personality or in single party, it's uh, some kind of interest, uh, special interest, but not in cons- a way, uh, but in very materialist way. And the- I
3: agree. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to point, I agree 100%. Like, uh, Tucker was trying to pr- bait him into this deep state, simplistic view of American governance. And mm-hmm. Tucker, like, says, well, yes, of course, like, the intelligence agencies have, like, a malign influence but he also like makes some nods to like democracy being like sort of unstable and you're not sure who's going to win elections and who has the (laughs) balance of power within the congress and also there are regional governments and different things like yeah it was actually it was very interesting that he didn't take the full like i how misaligned he is right with the the the, tucker's deep state simplicity is not if it's coming from Putin, he did a good job, I guess, masking it, because that wasn't the uh, understanding that he was presenting.
1: Well, I uh, actually, Putin, uh, in this particular topic, he presented himself as a good historical materialist. I think uh, his KGB like, education pays off a bit. Uh, and uh, this uh, question about the God, do you feel like anything supernatural drives the history and the international processes? And Putin simply says no. I was... On the one hand, I was relieved to hear it because it undercuts many scary uh, theories about Putin. If you if you remember, maybe you heard it, maybe not. Did not that there was a moment when two years ago, before the war in Ukraine, Putin was asked about the nu- nuclear war, and he said something like, uh, uh, "We don't have to worry about nuclear war. We are all uh, righteous people. We all go to the heaven, and they all go to the hell." and it was uh, a scary moment a bit for me because uh, do is he believe in it is he like really like evangelical nut who looking forward to the end of the world and uh, after his response to Tucker that he doesn't see any presence of supernatural in the world uh, how it's been run uh, i uh, sighed with relief i never believed in putin being really that religious and stuff uh, he always uh, strikes as the a, as a person who doesn't believe in anything, but uh, and that's why he went to the lowest uh, possible way of accumulating wealth and power, because there is not no 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 other ideology in him. But uh, when he just re, re, rebutted uh, Carlson this way, I was uh, kind of relieved. He I, I do believe he's a secular guy, uh, he's very materialist guy. He still uh, maybe in some world way remembers and uh uh keeps with him his materialist education from Soviet time. But I also was immensely frustrated with him because uh my second thought was why do you uh implement this uh, religious fascist crap on us uh for because uh, it's it's very frustrating. I mean uh just as the war started uh, uh I Putin, one of the first laws Putin implemented was in uh, summer 2022 was anti-gay law, basically uh, against gay propaganda, basically uh, expressing that you are gay in Russia to every age and every public site becomes illegal. So basically me living as an open gay uh, and uh, presenting in in any fashion publicly, becomes gay propaganda, being myself. So basically I was first uh, put in the category of second class citizen. Uh, It happened 18 months ago and two months ago uh, they uh, accelerated it and the Russian Supreme Court uh, uh, released the decision that LGBT movement, LGBT organization, LGBT symbolism is extremist organization. So if you associate yourself publicly with LGBT organization which doesn't exist, so everything LGBT in this, in, the, in the eyes of, of the police of the state of the court so whatever they think uh, ties you to LGBT in any way like uh, rainbow pin on your uh, short or, or whatever uh, or rainbow in your in your, in your picture what, whatever it make you an extremist and uh, after that there is no much uh, room to escalation but uh, because you have like regular criminals, then goes uh, extremists. It's a political category, and then goes terrorists. So there is no much uh, escalation left, and the only way to escalate uh, religious uh, fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist reactionism reactionism in Russia is to criminalize homosexuality as it is. So basically, return us thirty years ago, and uh, it all plus. Uh, Russia goes in uh, uh, the same way as America, in terms of prohibition abortion. It basically prohibited trans people, trans identity, and uh, it's even harder than uh, a gay identity. So, and I'm looking at this uh, reactionary crap that's uh, going on, uh, uh, this, uh, ha- how religious being pushed everywhere, in every facet of our lives, uh, to the detriment of education, science uh, and social cohesion. And it, it's all done by a person who doesn't believe in any of that, uh, except except one thing. He believes, I'm pretty sure, he believes in utility of it to control the unwashed masses. So he's been a secular person. He's been a rational person. He uses this bullshit for a very rational end to control the unwashed, unwashed and educated masses, and. Uh, uh, turning masses in the, the unwashed and uneducated by destroying uh, public education the, uh, in, uh, and science, also the part of this plan. So basically, uh, Russian populace was and still is very educated by the average uh, world standard, but it goes away because uh, if you need, uh, you don't need much if you're restoring Russian Empire. Russian Empire was 80% illiterate and very religious, and we're going this way, but it just seems to me. That more insidious because it's being done extremely cynically by a person who doesn't believe any of that. It's a hopeful sign in terms of international relationship that he's ultimately a rational person and you can rationally interact with him. But it's uh, just insulting and uh, very infuriating in terms of his relationship with his own people.
3: Uh, that reactionary drift. Do you think that is something that uh, will be arrested either post uh, Putin? Uh, you know, what do you think the outlook is on on Russian society and acceptance and
1: and on these lines? I honestly can't tell because I'm trying to be materialist about it, and uh, there is no other reason to stop the reactionary uh, drift, but. Uh, with having a progressive counterforce and we started from there that there is no progressive counterforce in Russia right now uh, there is a liberal counterforce it mainly crushed, and it ultimately reactionary too so basically it's like uh, they they all hate Putin Putinism, everything but Putin except when they present presented with any left alternative and then they they like daddy Putin save us from communists save us from that?" there's nothing to save them from right now, because there is no viable left alternative in Russia yet. So they are like, yeah, we are against Putin, against Putin, but it's only because there is no left alternative. If, if there was left alternative, you would see them asking uh, Putin police to crush left descent. So, bef- before we have this progressive left movement because before this birthing uh, worker movement uh, meets itself uh, with uh, ideological people and embraces uh, socialist ideology instead of avoiding it or running from it. Before it happens the drift to the right continues for the simple reason because there is nothing to counter it with. That's how I see it. Yeah. Um, and one other
3: thing is Tucker uh, I think wanted to tee up Putin with a uh, why is America so concerned about you when they should be concerned about China? And Putin is like, well, I think they are very concerned about China, in fact. Uh, I'm curious about that element, uh, the China element, if you had any observations on that. Actually, this was one of uh,
1: the glorious moment of this interview that I liked very much because, uh, uh, I mean, framing that attacker started it with, like, yeah, like America is bad, I all understand it, but China is worse, more ruthless, more cynical. I mean, uh, just appreciate the racism of it. Because he was speaking like, yeah, we're bad, but we are human. They are inhuman totally. They have no human empathy, they have no human feelings. They just skimming animals like, you know, those insects from the Starship Troopers. Uh, I I, I truly believe that Americans, especially on the right, but liberals too, see the China as a different planet where this collective herd mind of insects uh, plotting against uh, our planet. Like, well, it's it's all Starship Troopers, right? You, You understand the reference. Uh, and uh, in Tucker's question, in this framing, this was this dehumanization of uh, China was in, inherent to the, to the framing of the question and uh, Putin just cut him off, he said, uh, look at the China history, look at the China policy, they're not aggressive, you're more aggressive. And uh, I think it was a glorious rebuttal, I have no notes, Putin did a good job, unironi- unironically ruining uh, Tucker's uh, racist anti-China narrative with uh, because, again, a, a, this delusion is omnipresent on the West especially on the Western right, liberals and stuff that, yes, we are bad, but those Muslims, those Arabs, those Chinese they are in worse than us because, look, at least we are human they are not entirely human, they are inhuman, a-human and Putin says basically, no, they are actually human uh, they are actually more human than you in many respects uh, it's just you don't see the humanity. I mean, I think it fell flat on attackers ears completely, but uh, to me, it was uh, absolutely glorious. And the uh, moment that was, I completely agree, I find myself in agreement with Putin, It's just a uh, occasion.
2: Well, it's just like one thing that is so clear about a lot of these kind of like anti-war right-wingers in America, and I put, you know, anti-war in quotes because it's very clear <laughs> that whenever they're sort of upset about a conflict or might want to see a, a conflict be de-escalated, it's not because they've become you know, doves or peace-loving hippies. It's because they think that we should be prosecuting war and conflict against different people. Same thing with Tulsi Gabbard, Tucker Carlson, very much so. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting part of the interview, for sure.
1: They they actually uh the only part of the American establishment that uh, responds to the initial Putin request from the West. That Putin, basically, and uh, I think we didn't talk about it yet, but... Uh, Putin was uh, speaking a lot how uh, what, starting from this moment when uh, they sold us for the becoming uh, part of the bourgeois Western civilization and they they wanted basically their old place prior to 1917 back and uh, as uh, Hassan actually put it quite so simply that uh, Putin's Russia wanted to become to America what Israel is to America so being a c- client state backing USA in their endeavors, being backed uh, by USA and having the right to do with impunity, whatever they want in their part of the world, which is post-Soviet uh, uh, territory and the American right, when they say that we don't have to, we don't need to, to support uh, Ukraine and we need to live russia to their own devices they basically accept this premise it's only like they are anti-war they just say okay we we accept russia back in our like little club of uh, western empires and it uh, comes with the right to do what they want on their on, on borders yeah and
3: you know just to uh, uh, any other parts of the interview you wanted to comment on before we uh, move on
1: uh, well i actually uh, Maybe elaborate on this part uh, of Putin history. Yeah, two two important things. Uh, first, uh, this his history with America. I was uh, it was very uh, informative to me to hear uh, his uh, history of his relationship with American presidents, the CIA, how they interacted. Uh, uh, maybe something I think, uh, or I didn't hear about it before, or maybe he uh, actually broke some news. Speaking how, for example, he asked American president to stop meddling in Northern Caucasus and support uh, Islamist separatists there, and uh, CIA just answered, "No, we won't." And uh, it sounded like a breaking news. Maybe it was uh, public before. I don't know, but I didn't know about that. Uh, that it was directly. Uh, they directly addressed this question, and Americans directly said, "No, we continue to meddle." I mean, it's it's insane, and I totally believe it was it happened. Uh, he actually said many interesting things about the past, like uh, when Tucker. The best question from Tucker one uh, was when he pushed Putin on the question, "Would you?" Ultimately, join the NATO if the conditions were right. And Putin said yes if the conditions were right. Uh, we get some respect, some recognition as a uh, former Western empire restored. Uh, didn't say that exactly, but that's what he meant. Uh, we would join NATO. We would join that club of empires that existed 150 years ago. Uh, so. He and if you go back in history, in twenty years, you'll see that Russia was doing a lot. It was actually pro uh, uh, being uh, casting itself for the role of Israel uh, against uh, along the lines of uh, fighting the Islamist extremism. By the way, uh, like uh, there was a joint project of anti-missile defense. Uh, you, you, it will cover Russia, uh, Europe, and America against Iran. Right now, Iran is the biggest friend and ally of Russia. But 20 years ago, Putin was using Iran uh, as his uh, basically negotiation: uh, how we could uh, join our forces against who? Uh, let's do uh, the Islamist countries are common enemy. He was the first to call Bush after 9/11. He provided uh, NATO with. Uh, base in Ulyanovsk air base when they invaded Afghanistan there, is, there were a lot a lot of material and very real signs uh, that Putin basically uh, was extremely pro western and he was looking to become a part of the NATO part of maybe EU definitely a part of the special uh, relations with the US club and he was uh, rebuttled on every step he didn't get any of the respect he didn't get any of the uh, material benefits he was looking for, and when he uh, directly asked uh, small concessions like stop uh, fueling uh, Islamist separatism on our southern regions, he was directly said no. Despite the fact that uh, uh, Bush was uh, ready to hear them, MCIA said no. So this turn uh, to anti-American position, uh, it's a, basically it's scorn, it's, uh, it's a person that was upset and insulted by the re- constant rejection, he, he wanted to become what America or Israel is on his part in, in the world, he was rejected and uh, he went alone and he found new friends, but he's still uh, basically imperialist and, uh, and he's he actually very very western minded. But not a uh, progressive fast, uh, but more like a historic reactionary imperialist West But still very much western-minded person.
3: I suppose if I had to explain why America didn't extend more of a hand to friendship, as Putin put it, um, following the collapse of the USSR, it would be something along the lines of military-industrial uh, complications. I'm curious if you have any perspective or
1: idea on that. Oh, yes. Why we didn't... Yes. I see, uh, this is where his... Uh, uh, idealism and his uh, fantasy view of history uh, basically fooled him, because uh, he constructed this narrative uh, like uh, we were Western powers, Western empires, we control the world. I don't know exactly what is his justification. Is it genetic? Is it because of race? Is it because of religion? But anyway, it's some kind of idealist crap so we are the selected few of the nations that rule the world we uh, are empires and it's supposed to be like that forever because it's supposed to be like that no explanation uh, further needed so he thought that uh, this russia for some reason like went away russian empire went away for 70 years now we are back which is supposed to be accepted because it's our destiny uh, whereas if he was uh, remembering his historical materialism uh, trading a little bit he would realize that uh, the, whatever we had in 19th century it was a result of uh, economic development economic interest and uh, once Russia lost uh, its place uh, at the table, there is no material economic reason to just cut their share back because american corporations american oligarchs western oligarchs they already took all the places all the seats at the table and putin romantically idealistically thinks "Well, we are back guys give us our uh, previous uh, small uh, but uh, noble part at the table no you took it it's ours, we, we use it, and we, we, we still need to expand, we need more markets, we need more expansion, we need more uh, conquest and so on and so on, so whatever you get, you should fight for it yourself competitive, it's competition, it's uh, it's that so, uh, Putin idealistically expected to be uh, welcomed back to the table because he saw it as a concert of the nations, western nations, and uh, he saw it as in uh, a historical view uh, and americans uh, would never do that because why would they america and the west itself they are driven by their own material interest as russia actually does i mean why, why would putin want to be back uh, at the table he wanted his material share of the economic wealth uh, and, uh, of the world uh, so he do not be not realizing it but he wanted it for material reasons if for the same material reasons no one would no one would uh, let him back just gi- uh, give the big part a uh, piece of the pie so here, here is here is that so his historical view is uh, why he failed in understanding american uh, politics and why he uh, couldn't get and still probably don't understand why he was rejected at, at every step
3: interesting yeah um and you know finally Nonetheless, uh, I think not in a horrible position. So I I don't like to comment too much on the status of wars and on armies because, you know, I'm not a military expert. But overall, my gloss seems to be like uh, he's in a better position and Ukraine would like, and especially when you look at the American politics angle of it. I mean, post-October 7th in America supporting Gaza, like any international um, pressure that America could bring to bear against Russia seems to be out the window, at least in terms of like, moral uh, grounds. Um, But I'm curious, like, do you have any forecast for this conflict?
1: Uh, I can tell two things. First, uh, in terms of forecast, yes, I'll tell you a bit later. But uh, the more important thing from this interview, in my view, Putin was very insistent that he actually wants to negotiate right now. Uh, he said at many times there is a decree uh, signed by Zelensky. I don't know why he did it, but he basically prohibited himself from negotiating with Russia. At the, his high point, when he saw that uh, it will be possible to push Russia back to the 1991 borders, mm-hmm. so and then and then you can negotiate basically uh, the end of the war when you win it. Uh, but uh, there is no winning uh, the war for Ukraine. It, it doesn't seem so. I, I mean, there are there is like unlikely scenario, but uh, in terms of possible forecast, uh, most likely nothing uh, shows that even with uh, this sixty one billion package go, goes through, there is no ultimately winning uh, the war for Ukraine. Not not in terms of full win with Crimea and Donbass back under Kiev control and. Uh, It was a silly decree and Putin multiple times uh, over the course of many questions, not a single uh, question from Tucker Carlson, said you should cancel this decree and go back to the negotiation table. And he even said that there there is possible a way to find the frame this peace between our countries in a way that uh, will be decent to you. He said it, he literally said it. I mean, I am paraphrasing, but that's what he said uh, directly. And it was kind of funny, but also revealing, because people in America will always speak about off-ramp for Putin, uh, meaning that how he can accept uh, his defeat gracefully. Uh, And Putin says, well, we are actually open in terms of off-ramp for Zelensky. So, we actually are actually open to negotiating the end of the war the way that we will not be uh, looking. I mean, he didn't say it, but he implied it heavily. You can look back to the interview uh, we, uh, as I interpreted. And I think it was, he was not direct, but very clear in, the, in this intent that we are open to negotiate the end of the war in a way that won't be humiliated uh, humiliating defeat that ends Ukraine at all, or even Zelensky presidency at all. And as some Ukrainians said, uh, he, uh, he Putin mentioned uh, Istanbul negotiations, and he confirmed uh, its reality that it was uh, the biggest part about Istanbul negotiations. The biggest uh, question about them was not that it was happening and how serious Ukraine was before Boris Johnson arrived, but how serious Russia was about it. Was the Russ or was it a genuine attempt to end the war that started badly and definitely not the way that Putin expected. He did not expect the war, that's for sure. He expected special military operation and quick regime change in a matter of weeks. Not. he did not expect uh, He was uh, let down by his intelligence and his delusions and stuff, but uh, he definitely did not. wasn't prepared for war, wasn't expecting and, and was prepared to end it swiftly uh, through Istanbul negotiations and uh, so first he confirmed that he was serious about it, and put the blame uh, on the Ukraine. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but still he was serious about it. And as some Ukrainian uh, commentator said, uh, the conditions of the Istanbul, uh, Ukraine won't get obviously because it was uh, two years ago and it was include included uh, Russia. Pulling back its forces uh, to the borders of Donbass and Crimea or in further, and even put their future uh, uh, future of Crimea on the table. Like uh, in 15 years, we will discuss it again. There was this condition. So obviously, in this situation on the front, they won't get this option. But now, as I'm quoting this Ukrainian commentator, they can get formula. It's his interpretation and I just would crap for it. Istanbul plus four oblasts. So these four oblasts of thousand Ukraine that Russia occupied it's uh, Kherson, uh, Zaporizhia, Donbass and Lugansk. Uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, they they uh, are formally the part of Russia. So I don't I don't think Putin want to give up them. But besides those oblasts, Ukrainian neutrality uh, is uh, and uh, basically those two conditions, keeping the territory he already conquered, plus Ukrainian neutrality, would be, as uh, we can infer from what uh, Putin uh, said, uh, acceptable uh, negotiating, negotiating uh, position, bargaining for him right now. So basically he said uh, he wants to negotiate. He, understands the importance of the off-ramp for Ukraine, so it wouldn't be so he doesn't demand a total defeat and probably understands that he couldn't get a total defeat from Ukraine. And uh, we can infer that his uh, uh, demands probably will be uh, Istanbul plus for oblast basically status quo. And uh, for me, uh, in terms of what I can uh Predict about the future, what I can see is that the future holds for us. This is the second best moment to negotiate after Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul would be the best. We'll have this war over uh, two years ago. It would be just uh, played, uh, they would just play uh, the sink packs, put the meat back in the grinder, and, and mm-hmm. it would be over. I mean, it couldn't be over because of the Western influence, but if, if it wasn't for that, I do believe that. Uh, Putin recognized his military mistake, that he got himself into war instead instead of special military operation immediately, and he was prepared to go back. Right now, it's the second best... Uh, I mean, it's bad if you want to see Ukraine restored in full uh, border, but again, you, you, you should accept it, the two years ago uh, negotiations. Right now, it's maybe not the best uh, option, but it's the best that Ukraine will gonna get, because in a year or two from now, the next uh, negotiation option will be even worse. And in terms of predictions, I see uh, three scenarios. The first uh, scenario uh, is uh, possible if America won't uh, follow through with uh, uh, this package, and uh, first armor and money, but uh, most importantly armor. the collapse of the front, uh is entirely possible this year Mm -hmm. and uh, then it's uh basically ukraine will have to probably capitulate well it's a bad scenario for ukraine let's say and it's entirely possible it's totally dependent on your domestic uh, calculations and your domestic uh, whatever going on in the congress Uh, the second option uh if but uh i want to say it's not a uh, a case for the for the 6 to 1 billion dollars to ukraine at all because the second option if those money will go to ukraine and this ammo will go to ukraine i think it's kind of even worse to so definitely not the better because uh, america uh it doesn't seem that america wants to crush russia in this war Because they understand. I mean, America holds enough uh, arms uh, to basically, if they supply uh, to Ukraine their full wish list, the way they supply the full wish list to Israel, uh, they would probably be able to crush Russian front, to make Russian front collapse and create uh, even a crisis within Russia. But then instead of the crisis the size of Ukraine, you would have the crisis the size of Russia. And Russia borders Northern Korea. Russia borders... Uh, China, Russia borders uh, almost borders Iran, Russia borders Europe. So imagine, uh, imagine the chain effect of Russian collapse. So America, even if they follow through with the money, they will never give Ukraine enough money and arms to defeat Russia. They will only prolong this uh, brutal slaughter on the front lines. And Ukraine already sees the end of the remaining power. They are prepared to starting this half a million people mobilization and there are all the signs uh, that they won't be able to fulfill it because, first, it is, it's very expensive and they don't have the money. But even if they get the money from America, it might cause them huge domestic crisis uh, because it's uh, mobilization is a huge problem right now in Ukraine. There is no volunteers left and there is uh, very much people against... Uh, People who are not already on the front lines don't want to get there at any cost. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of street fights against uh, military police who tries to uh, find people who are avoiding draft. And if they try, t- uh, this country of 30 million people, after the 10 million left for Europe, if they will try to follow through with American money to mobilize half a million people more. It uh, might cause them domestic crisis that will ruin their uh, uh, ruin Zelensky regime. But even if they get the money, they get the ammo, they mobilise half a million people, uh, the Americans won't give them, them enough ammo to defeat Russia. So we will have just two years of this meat grinder, well, where this half a million people will be murdered or disabled uh, too. And in two years, two more years, we will have the same situation. But Ukraine have no people to mobilize. Even if America give them all the money, all the uh, um, ammo in the world, they have bought themselves two more years. Killed many Russians, killed many uh, their own people, and they still have to end this war because they have no one no to mobilize. So a, what I'm saying is that the second scenario, if First scenario is bad for Ukraine if uh, the help doesn't go through and the pro- fr- front collapses. It, it means the defeat. The second scenario if, if the help uh, comes through, uh, but in this uh, limited fashion, like it's going on right now, is probably even worse because uh, they end up the same place, but uh, two years later and a half million more deaths later, and uh, not to mention all the Russian deaths on this war. And the third scenario the hope scenario for Ukraine and for the West, that something breaks in Russia first. And it's not an impossible scenario. But again, this is a scenario that America itself doesn't want. Because uh, how deep will be this breakup? up? Uh, they were scared enough of the Perigotian mutiny. It was a silly coup, but it was uh, still an attempt in mutiny. Imagine if Russia falls, falls apart like the Soviet Union did. Speaking, uh, how many conflicts all over Eurasia? will ignite. Plus 5000 nukes uh, losing control. So the third scenario, the hope that uh, something breaks in Russia first is possible. Everything is possible. It's definitely uh, true in this moment, historical. But that's not the scenario America itself wants. And it doesn't seem to be likely because Russia has more people and Putin uh, holds his grip on power. So in terms of more likely scenarios, you have like either a quick uh, defeat in the war for Ukraine or prolonged destruction of every, everybody in this war and still defeat. And From these three options, uh, I prefer the first negotiations and, and, and the war. But uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, hold any hope because I think that uh, the modus operandi of neoliberal regimes on the West is impotence. Uh, will right. willing, 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 willing impotence so they will they will let uh, play out one of the worst possible scenarios but they won't uh, take any responsibility any for any uh, action to actually negotiate the peace because it's not even the peace the problem between Russia and Ukraine it's the world order is the problem world uh, security architecture because we have lost the security architecture that uh, kept the peace in Europe after the second mm-hmm. World War II. It was actually lost between 1989-1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed in Yugoslavian war start, started. So uh, we were in denial about that for 70 years. And this is the price of the denial. That the previous uh, safety uh, architecture that kept largely world peace, especially in Europe, it was uh, standing on two columns the, on the this uh, conflict between Soviet bloc and the American bloc. Uh, without Soviet bloc, this balance, uh, hmm. however dangerous it was, was lost. America went completely unhinged as a world superpower, doing whatever they want, doing uh, whatever they want, speaking about. Uh, regime change in any country they want, like they are talking about changing of their clothes. Uh, And uh, we need, strategically speaking, we need a new security architecture, global security architecture. And uh, when I'm talking about negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, I'm not talking about ending this particular war. I'm talking about uh, recognition that this war is just the latest breakup in the world order that doesn't uh, exist anymore and uh, we need to create some kind of new uh, security architecture that will include everyone not, not exclude mm-hmm. half of the world like NATO does It include mm-hmm. Russia, include uh, North Korea, include China, include Brazil, include good countries, include bad countries include uh, whatever uh, you, uh, people you like, whatever you don't like, everyone who has a real stake and power on the world stage? Uh, and when we negotiate it, the world will become better. And we not only, and this war, we will prevent other wars. But there is no force on the West, in the current uh, neoliberal leadership West, to mm-hmm. even attempt to think like that. Yeah. And probably what? they un- probably they understand <laughs> what the negotiation between Russia and uh, Ukraine implies. That implies this. Uh, big uh, conversation that cancels the end of history and actually uh, demands the new security architecture for the world and uh, understanding this, they would prefer the world burn than to act on it because it's not, uh, not a task that they are capable of doing, I think, I'm afraid.
3: Is that is that, you know, your interpretation of the Boris Johnson veto um, that that they were concerned about these sorts of avenues being or these sorts of i mean diplomatic muscles being developed Um, because now i mean after a couple years and hundreds of thousands of people dead and uh loss of um, leverage in negotiations that seems like a massive blunder um and and i don't see a lot of
1: yeah go ahead i honestly think it was more mindless than that i don't think he was afraid of this uh uh, huge task of the creating of the uh, new security global security architecture uh he doesn't seem like the guy who would be uh, understanding these things uh, he was just uh, acting like uh old school imperialist like like uh, his counterpart putin does uh, in his old you know. school imperialist way like uh, biden does when he seen what uh, happened in gaza uh, and how the middle east uh, starting to rise up what he does he just sends uh, aircraft carriers. Why? And, and they didn't do anything. By the way, they just mm-hmm. went there, uh, post, uh, stand there for a while, just uh, give a few headlines, and went back. Because what, what? would they do? What are they supposed to do? It's just a mindless action uh, of uh, people who have no direction and no understanding of the world they are in, they are in, and uh, the uh, historical moment and their, their historical responsibility. They have their tools, the hammers, and they are, and they apply them. They think if uh, we have these uh, huge and monstrous uh, aircraft carriers and we send them, it will do magic. Like, and uh, J- Boris Johnson did his magic. He thought like it, maybe it's like he thought it's like again 1853 when there was uh, the previous Crimean War when uh, France and uh, Britain uh, defeated Russia basically. He, he thought uh, maybe it, it is uh, again this moment and as well, as well as Biden thinks his magical thinking that American uh, uh, aircraft carriers and uh, his uh, uh, spell casting via America we can we can finance the wars at once uh, will make any difference. It's just a magical thinking of the people who lives in who live in the 19th century and uh, they are no different than Putin. They, right. uh, they, they they remember those days of glory of their countries. They want to restore it without any understanding. So I think it was a mindless action yeah. of the people who are wholly incompetent and inqualified for, this, for the current moment and who it, sleep, sleepwalk us into destruction. Yeah, realism. no
3: shit. And it's funny, you know, say say Putin, um, Putin's historical lesson. Bibi Netanyahu does similar sort of we're going to go take it uh, uh, way back. One final thing I did want to ask you about yes. that concerned me about Putin, and actually it concerned Tucker Carlson, but I think I was concerned for different reasons than Tucker, is when Putin said, I'm, I'm not satisfied with the denazification efforts. And I'm curious about like his like sort of reservation there. Is that something he's going to say, like, okay, I'll let you keep the Nazis if you give us this territory? Or what uh, Putin's denazification emphasis, how do you interpret that?
1: Uh, wait, uh, maybe I didn't uh, hear you. Correctly, but be- because, uh, as I understand this interview, he actually uh, kind of diminished, uh, downplayed the denazification part. He just said uh, that uh, it, it, you don't have to have like open Nazi organizations and stuff. So basically, as I understood it, I didn't pay that much of attention to this. this so issue. yeah, no, I
3: don't think I don't think that's entirely off. I think um, he he did say like yes, actually we've worked on these things um, prior, um, but he. He, he said it as, like, Tucker's like, so you are, you've are you accomplished your goals, and he said, no, not regards to denazification. Um, but I, I, I know what you mean in the sense that he said, like, actually, this is a solvable issue that we can work with. But, yeah, that's that was just the last thing that kind of stuck out to me.
1: I, I can tell. Uh, I honestly don't know. Like, uh, on the other issues, I more or less understand Putin positions and confident in my interpretation. But in terms of denazification... I'm still not sure what he means because it' it sounds a bit esoteric for me and um, he showed himself as a rational guy I mean he deluded for, for sure he, in many respects but uh, within his like world view uh, as he have it has it uh, he's a quite rational guy and this densification thing seems uh, oddly esoterical like what does he mean so my the, if if you accept this uh, rational Putin framing, again, within his deluded world view, his rational actor. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my best interpretation would be just ban organizations that uh, directly praise Bandera and Petlura and people like that, ban uh, uh, Azov uh, Brigade and stuff, and, and it will be it. What else can he mean? Uh, that's my understanding from the interview. What else can you yeah. mean uh, by that i frankly don't know i mean it's it's this part is still very uh, really esoteric for me
3: yeah fair enough yeah i mean i think one thing that uh our parliaments could do is stop applauding uh you know nazis <laughs> uh, um, would, would, um, would, be, would be nice <laughs> um
1: Yegor Kotkin, um where can people follow you uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, basically as, uh, where I'm present, uh, and you can find me on YouTube, also Yegor Kotkin at Igor Kotkin as Twitter. I'm not posting any content there yet, but my interviews are uploaded there, and maybe maybe I'll start eventually doing something there, so you can subscribe me, it's, it costs you nothing. But mainly I'm active on Twitter and uh, no, nowhere else, because I'm very much cut off from the American services as Substack and uh, Patreon. Mm. Right, right.
3: Well, Igor, uh, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for staying up uh, late with us. I yes. uh, really appreciate talking to you, man. Oh, it was uh, very, very interesting to talk to you. I'm
1: happy to share my thoughts, and I think uh, it's it's. I think it's important for Americans, or at least for your audience to hear a Russian perspective that doesn't come from Putin or from Russian liberals in the position. Those both positions are equally deranged. 100 <laughs> 100%. 100%. Yeah, thank you. Thank you,
3: guys. Yes, folks. Enjoyed very much talking to Igor.
2: No, really. It was a pleasure. Um,
3: could have, could have, honestly, there's like, like th- four questions I'm like, I meant to ask and then we just didn't get to it. And it's like, I mean, it's an hour and I, seven the minutes. thing is like, we oh. made
2: that decision like four times. Sorry. Yeah, go keep going.
3: I was just gonna say we have expanded our um our sort of infrastructure electronically so we could bring you a full hour-long interview like that um, because uh, actually we're limited to an hour. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was such a great conversation. But go ahead, David.
2: Oh, no, I was just gushing too. I was just saying, uh, yeah. Um, I feel like we made that executive decision like three or four times in the interview to keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's still more we want to get to. So yeah, really appreciate that. Hope you all did as well.
3: Um, folks, appreciate all the, uh, you know, that fricking Joe Rogan, I know we've said it, but the free speech guy and all of a sudden he's just grubbing, just, just snatching up those little monetization funds. Um, uh, just grubbing his little, you know, <laughs> his eyes bulging. There's, oh, there's some, there's, there's, oh, here's another hundred dollars on top of my 250 million. Please put that into, uh, on it enterprises or whatever the fuck. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit annoyed, but thank you to everybody who has uh, become members or uh, uh, super chatted or even just subscribed um, mm-hmm. uh, in the wake of our being oppressed by this you know, corporate behemoth. It's the corporate behemoths, folks. They don't like the little guy to, you know be having great conversations.
2: <laughs> well, speaking about great conversations, they're not over. We're about to be jumping over to the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning. Um, we'll be taking some of y'all's questions and discords. Um, but also we got a little bit of a preview of a very uh, important conversation of some big brain folks that were keeping a surprise for Matt Leck. And um, definitely want to see um, him, see what one of his biggest fans is up to right now. Um, we also have a little bit of an in-depth segment coming for y'all. Um, on none other than uh, Sam Harris, uh, somebody who speaks slowly and in a boring monotone vo- voice, um, but is just whispering some of the most genocidal um, and racist rhetoric. Uh, and this one, even for him, I have to say, truly surprised me. So that's coming up is in he, the post game.
3: Is this in conversation with our boy David Packman?
2: You know what? I felt that it wouldn't even be fair to bring this one um, to, to do that one. This one is in depth, pure Harris. Um, and a good reminder of who uh, David Pakman is rubbing elbows with. So y'all will wanna y'all want to join I,
3: us for that. I apologize to any Harrises um, out there in the audience because it's a rough time for because of <laughs> a, a combination of words. Pure Harris. <laughs> you either think sam harris or you think kamala harris and neither sure. one of those is like <laughs> not a great time to be mainlining harris um i'm trying to think i i, I can't even think of all the good harrises i'm trying to think of sports harrises who are the Harris's? i'm blanking. blank casino all, i don't know it's all, it's all obscured by harrises yeah so but stand up for Harris's.
2: your name uh, good harrises out there um but folks you'll want to join us for that patreon.com slash left reckoning um we'll be having a lot of fun there so come by. Thank you everyone. See you soon.
3: Peace.